I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, The first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee. And Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee, they're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to the final episode of Season 2 of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and before I dive into this week's episode, I would like to say thank you. Thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast, who reads the blog, who signs up for our monthly reading list email and our weekly Sunday reflection emails. I'm beyond grateful, and honestly, I'm extremely humbled when I think about the momentum that From the Green Notebook has right now. A year ago, if you would have asked me if I plan to start a podcast, I would have said, no way. It wasn't something I felt comfortable doing. And if I be real with myself, even now, each episode takes a great deal of courage on my part to put together. It's kind of intimidating, not only interviewing people that are way outside of my league, but also knowing that thousands of people are going to be listening to my voice, especially when I don't even like hearing it. But I did this because I felt like it would be another way beyond the written medium to reach leaders and invite them to learn with me. And I don't know about you, but I have learned so much about leadership and about life through talking to the amazing guests who have been on the show. So I want to let you know that I'm taking a break for the rest of the summer and the podcast will be back in September for season three with an amazing lineup of guests. Now, this week, we're diving into the notebook of Yen Stoltenberg. He is the Secretary General of NATO and officially the first world leader that I've had the privilege of interviewing for the podcast. Jens Stoltenberg has an amazing story. He's been the Prime Minister of Norway, and he's served in his current role since 2014. In this episode, he talks about what he's learned leading an international organization made up of 30 member countries. He talks about what he learned from his parents growing up and how he led his country through a national tragedy when on July 22, 2011, a domestic terrorist killed 77 people, including many who were teenagers at a youth camp. So this is a powerful episode and a rare glimpse into the leadership of one of the most powerful and respected leaders in the world. So please welcome to the show, Yen Stoltenberg. 
Thank you so much for having me, Joe. And I really look forward to sitting down with you and uh, discuss uh, hopefully important issues. I would like to focus today's conversation on leadership. So the first question I'd like to ask is, NATO is both a political and a military alliance of 30 member countries. How tough is it to manage both aspects of the organization? You know, I think it's a great advantage that NATO combines military and political tools, that we are both a political and military alliance. And of course, it is a very close connection between uh, military efforts to preserve peace and uh, uh, political and diplomatic efforts to preserve peace. The aim is the same, and that is to prevent uh, any ally from being attacked. And the idea of NATO is very simple. It's uh, one for all and all for one. It's enshrined in our Article 5 of the Washington Founding Treaty, where it states that uh, an attack on one ally will be regarded as an attack on all. And as long as that message is credible, we prevent any attack against any ally. And we have been able to do so for more than 70 years, and uh, we will continue to do so because we have agreed on a very ambitious, forward-looking NATO 2030 agenda at our NATO summit uh, just a few days ago. You know, it's very interesting about you, Secretary General, as you have been in the seat of the Secretary General of NATO since 2014. And so during that period of time, over the last seven years, you have seen a series of world leaders come and go. You've seen uh, heads of defense come and go. And, you know, you've been kind of the one constant through it all, the continuity of NATO. So I have to ask, what have you learned about leadership by seeing all these different styles of leaders come through? So first of all, I learned that leaders uh, are very different uh, and they have di very different style, very different uh, way of behaving, very different ways of of actually uh, conducting their leadership uh, tasks. What matters for NATO is that uh, despite the fact that we have very many different leaders uh, in our alliance, because we represent 30 different democracies where leaders shift over time, uh, we have always been able to unite around our core task, and that is to protect and defend each other. And in that way, NATO goes beyond individual leaders. We have the strength in the institutions we are building. And of course, we also reflect the strength of all the thousands of uh, personnel who are serving in our armed forces. And I would like to really to pay tribute to them because I've traveled around the United States and all over the world. And I met soldiers from NATO allied countries. And they are so dedicated, they are so professional. And they should just know that what they are doing is so important for all of us, close to one billion people live in, uh, in safety because uh, we have uh, strong NATO and all the people in uniform who are serving every day to preserve peace and uh, protect us against any threat. So moving on to a question that's a bit more personal, who are some of the leaders who've influenced you or, or shaped you in your life? Uh, <laughs> so I have to be honest, and uh, I, I have always been afraid of uh, picking a particular political figure as a role model. But my mother and my father, they were both public servants, uh, politicians, and uh, they have both inspired me. Uh, they have both passed away now, but they really believed in the idea of working together. They believed in taking responsibility for our society uh, and that... Uh, as long as we work together, as long as we share responsibilities, we can actually gradually make this world a better place. And uh, I also very much admire their ability, especially my father had this ability to 
to see compromise, to, to realize that extreme solutions are very seldom or never the good solutions. So we need to take into account that people have different needs, different interests, and they are legitimate. And then we need to balance them and make people work together. And that has inspired me throughout my professional life, but also actually throughout my private life. Speaking of your parents, it's really interesting. You grew up with something, I believe it was called dining table diplomacy or, or dining room diplomacy. Could you talk a little bit about that? And that was, again, my father. He was um, foreign minister, defense minister in different Norwegian governments. And uh, he very much believed in getting people together and uh, especially for breakfast. Uh, you know, in the diplomatic world, there are many big dinners and uh, receptions and so on with a lot of uh, delicious food. He <laughs> he had a other philosophy, so he actually prepared breakfast himself uh, with some, uh, what I say, uh, not very advanced uh, Norwegian cheese uh, and uh, not the best and freshest bread in the world, but a lot of coffee uh, and then some jam. And then he served that to, you know, heads of state and government and foreign ministers and uh, in a kitchen which was okay, but not the most tidy and most <laughs> advanced kitchen in, in Oslo or, or, or in Norway. But that created an atmosphere. Uh, few people felt at home. And that was a way to, yeah, to enable a lot of political processes. Uh, also, for instance, preparing what later became the, the, this Oslo process that led to the Oslo Accord for the Middle East and, uh, and, uh, the, and also the peace efforts on the Balkans. Where, 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 then he was very involved in that as a UN envoy for the, so for the, that, uh, the peace process in, in the Balkans in the 1990s. So, yes, he, he believed in getting people together and, uh, and having some coffee and some, some, <laughs> some uh, breakfast. And, uh, and uh, I, I, I believe in the same, but I'm, I'm not as good as him in uh, serving breakfast. Are there any of those breakfasts that stood out to you? So I remember Nelson Mandela. And, you know, I was not that young. I think I was around 30, but I, I was not living at home anymore. But I came to his house and uh, Nelson Mandela was uh, leaving. I just finished the breakfast. And, and that was a great morning uh, to see uh, Nelson Mandela. It was just a couple of years after he had been released uh, from prison. He served, you know, almost 30 years in prison. Uh, uh, because he was you know, opposing the apartheid regime in South Africa. Uh, and then he came to Norway and he met with my father and they had breakfast. It was, in theory, very informal. But I remember they were sitting there with ties, which was very unusual for these breakfasts. But to meet him there uh, and to realize that this man had actually served 27 years in prison uh, because he opposed the whole apartheid regime. And then he, after that, uh, he was elected to president of South Africa and then actually worked for compromise and reconciliation. That's a great message from a man who has suffered so much. And so Nelson Mandela and my father, they, they were very different, but they all believed in compromise and friendship and reconciliation and the deconfliction. I think that is absolutely amazing that, you know, your parents gave you and your siblings, you know, the, the opportunity to sit at the breakfast table and be able to watch the interaction between them and world leaders and, and learn about like what really goes into diplomacy. And, you know, it definitely not on the same level, but even with this podcast, you know, I, I've tried to use this as an opportunity to talk to my son about who I'm interviewing, what they do, and why their work is important. And, you know, just as a, as a teaching tool, which by the way, he says uh, to tell you hello, which I told him I would. 
so moving on, you know, I was able to, you know, witness you in action, Secretary General, as you chaired the Defense Ministerials. And for those listeners who are unfamiliar with that, the Defense Ministerials were the meetings with the Secretary General and all the defense ministers across the 30 member nations. And then you recently, you know, just within the last couple of days, wrapped up the NATO summit, which was a meeting with all the world leaders. So how do you prepare for meetings of those magnitudes? And what are some of the challenges that you face in doing so? So first of all, you have to give my best regards back to your son. Then on chairing uh, meetings and how to prepare. Well, I think the most important thing is to make sure that we have some important decisions to take, that, that, that there is a purpose when you know you gather 30 heads of state and government, uh, it has to be a purpose. So it is uh, not, of course, only me, but my staff, all my people, all the people working in the NATO headquarters who are working very hard for many, many weeks and days to make sure that we have prepared decisions that leaders can agree. And that's exactly what happened now when we had President Biden coming to Brussels, meeting 29 other heads of state and government, and we made very important decisions for our alliance. We agreed a forward-looking, ambitious agenda, the NATO 2030 agenda, on how to future-proof, make NATO ready for the future. And this is about how we shall um, reinforce or will reinforce our collective defense, how we will sharpen our technological edge, and how we will strengthen our resilience. All of this is important for NATO. And the summit with President Biden was a great success because we were able to demonstrate our commitment to North America, Europe, working together in NATO, not only in words, but in deeds, because we had the prepared decisions for allies to agree. And then, of course, allies welcomed President Biden. He knows NATO well. He is rock solid in his commitment to Article 5, Collective Defense Clause. Uh, he stated this several times that this is sacred. And, of course, in return, European allies and Canada committed to NATO themselves. Uh, so... Uh, in an unpredictable world, in a more competitive world, it is even more important that we stand together. A strong NATO is, is good for Europe, but it's also good for the United States. No other major power has 29 friends and allies as the United States has in NATO. Secretary General, one of the things that I have loved about doing this blog and just getting more involved in social media over years as a result of it is the fact that, you know, at the tactical level, Soldiers across NATO are coming together to share lessons, to share ideas. You know, we've published several articles over the years on the blog. And then just, you know, watching social media, there's always soldiers from across the NATO member countries interacting, sharing lessons, sharing ideas on leadership. And so it really is a great collaborative ecosystem right now. Yes. And of course, the strength of NATO is that we bring together 30 nations. That's, of course, partly governments, heads of state and, and, and government uh, ministers and all these uh, the high brass people, whatever you call them, the people who are in the different leadership positions at the top of the military or political structures. But I believe actually more importantly is that we bring together people across the board, soldiers, officers, sailors, airmen, all the different people who actually train together, exercise together, and are in missions together in Iraq or in Kosovo or in battle groups in the eastern part of the alliance in the Baltic countries in Poland. I visited the U.S.-led uh, battle group in Poland, and there you have, you know, 
troops and, and soldiers from many different countries working together, operating together and protecting Europe together. And this is the strength of NATO, is that we bring together thousands and thousands of personnel in all the different domains, demonstrating the unity of our alliance. I can just mention, I met U.S. Marines on board uh, the HMS uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, a U.K. aircraft carrier off the coast of Portugal a couple of weeks ago. And on board on that ship, you had, of course, a U.K. crew, but you also had the U.S. Marines operating F-35s and all the support teams. And we had a Dutch frigate helping to protect the aircraft carrier. And they were on their way to the South China or to the Asia Pacific. And that really demonstrates how NATO brings together people from many different countries in a common task to make sure that we protect all allies. So prior to stepping up and being the Secretary General of NATO, you were the Prime Minister of Norway for several years. So I'm curious, how has your leadership changed or evolved from your time as prime minister to now? Well, it has, of course, changed in a way that I have assumed a different uh, role. And uh, I lead now a national organization of 30 nations. While uh, when I was prime minister, I was leading a country, uh, Norway. And of course, the issues I address are different. When I was a Norwegian prime minister, of course, I worked on defense issues, uh, but also on health, education, climate change, and many other issues. So the topics on my desk are very different. And then, of course, working with Norwegian politicians, Norwegian parliament is different than working with 30 different nations. And also just the fact that I'm, I have to work on a language or which is not my mother tongue is also a huge change. Having said that, there are many similarities because, again, this is about striking the right balance, finding the right compromise, making sure that people are working together. And I led a coalition government, so I needed to negotiate the positions of three parties, my own party and two other parties to agree on all, all issues. And uh, when I lead the North Atlantic Council, we are 30 states around the table. And of course, I need to find compromises. And that is fundamentally the same, even though the issues we apply those compromises on, of course, are different. Let's say that NATO invented a time machine and you were able to travel back to 2014 to when you first became the secretary general. What advice would you give yourself? Um, I don't know whether I have any specific advice, but I think perhaps that I would have been even more focused on the importance of traveling around and meeting all the perfect and excellent people who are serving in this organization. I'm happy I spent a lot of time in capitals, working with us in Brussels, but also in, in, in all the other NATO capitals. But uh, I think when I leave, I will regret that I haven't spent even more time with all the people serving in our alliance, the military and the civilian personnel. As we've discussed in this podcast, you've been in that role now for seven years and I can't even imagine, you know, just the weight and responsibility that you've had to shoulder across that period. So I want to know, like, what do you do to relax? What do you do to recharge your batteries? You know, I'm I'm 62 years old. So it's even more important that I uh, exercise now than actually when I was younger. So I try to exercise regularly. Um, uh, 
Not as often as I should, but I bike home. I bike from the head, NATO headquarters. That's uh, that's a very good bike ride. Uh, then I also bike uh, sometimes during the weekends. And then when I'm able to go to Norway for the winter holidays or Christmas and so on, I love cross-country skiing. That's my favorite sport. But then actually what I've also started to do is to visit war cemeteries around in Belgium. Because that reminds me of how important uh, NATO is and the importance of the institutions we established after the Second World War to prevent war. Because this uh, this part of Europe is so filled with and there are so many battlefields from the First and the Second World War. You have, not very far from here, you have Normandy, and then you have the Ardennes with the Battle of the Bulge, and then uh, also been in Arnhem. Uh, uh, we had this you know, famous film or movie, uh, Bridge Too Far, a big military operation at the end of the Second World War. And many U.S. soldiers have served, many lost their lives, and I, then I go to these memorials and these war cemeteries, and that's a stark reminder of the importance of making sure that nothing like that happens once again. But it's also a stark reminder of how much the United States has actually invested not only in treasure, but in blood in our transatlantic bond. And NATO is a kind of result of the Second World War. And uh, our main responsibility is to make sure that nothing like that happens again. Secretary General, speaking of sacrifice, one of the things that I've learned over time as leaders, like we can't pick and choose when we lead, like events are going to happen to us that are outside of control. And I've heard you say before that July 22nd, 2011 was one of your darkest days as prime minister. Could you talk a little bit about that day and then what you did to lead your nation through that tragedy? The terrorist attacks on the 22nd of July in Norway in 2011, um, that was a very brutal terrorist attack. Uh, partly it was a bomb attack against uh, my office, the, the the government office. I was at that time Prime Minister of Norway um, and, uh, and eight people were killed there. Uh, and then uh, the same terrorist that planted the bomb there uh, went to an island um, just half an hour out of Oslo, outside of Oslo. And at that island, there was a, there was a summer camp with a lot of young people uh, from actually my political party, uh, and he killed uh, 69 of them. Um, so uh, this was a very big terrorist attack. Um, uh, many people were killed, uh, most of them very young people. And uh, uh, it, it, of course, shocked uh, our uh, nation. Uh, the guy that committed those attacks, he was, he was uh, we say often in Norway, he was one of us. He was a white man who hated the Muslims and uh, hold my government responsible for letting too many foreigners into my country or our country, Norway. And um, he misused uh, his religion. So he was a Christian, so he misused that, that religion to commit a terrorist attack, as we have seen other misusing Islam to commit terrorist attacks. Uh, with uh, uh, with a different message, uh, for me that the, what the lesson learned is that terrorism comes in many different forms, where people that believe in violence uh, misuse different political ideologies and different religions to commit atrocities and violence in a scale in a way which is absolutely unacceptable and appalling. And my message after this terrorist attack was that we should not 
respond uh, with hatred to hatred. We need to stand up for our open, democratic, inclusive uh, societies and not let the terrorists win by closing and becoming uh, less on our democratic and open societies. And uh, and I think that's the that's the message, regardless of uh, of what kind of form, what kind of disguise terrorists. Uh, conduct their atrocities. Uh, terrorism is bad regardless. Thank you very much uh, for sharing that. And I, I really appreciate your outlook about the need to not let our passions uh, drive us to change our values. Changing gears a bit, there are a lot of younger listeners to this podcast, both you know, rising civic leaders and rising military leaders. Secretary General, what advice would you give those who are beginning to grow in their leadership positions? First of all, to focus on what they do today. I think that people who are too focused on their career or what should happen in five, ten years, they sometimes forget that the most important thing you do is actually to do a good job where you are. If you're a student, to do your homework and to focus on on on, on the subjects you are studying. If you have a trainee job or a young person, you're newly employed somewhere, then focus on that job. That's my, that's what I have done my whole life. And then suddenly you end up uh, uh, places you don't expect. So uh, my main, my main advice is to be focused on the responsibilities and the task you have in front of you. Secretary General, I have one last question for you. With the Resolute Support Mission in Afghanistan ending, a mission that I had the honor and privilege to be a part of. What message do you have for the soldiers who served, you know, in Afghanistan representing NATO over the years? First of all, to thank all those um, who served in the Resolute Support Mission and ISAF Mission, our NATO missions in Afghanistan. Second, to pay respect to all those who lost their lives and all those who have been wounded. And then express my gratitude uh, to all of them, including their families and all those who have been affected by uh, the very difficult mission we have had in Afghanistan for so many years. We went into Afghanistan after an attack on the United States and we triggered our collective defense clause, uh, Article 5. And uh, more than 100,000 troops from Canada and Europe have served shoulder to shoulder with U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And for me, that demonstrates the solidarity of NATO, that European allies and Canada are standing together with the United States. Many of them have paid the ultimate price. And the reason why I went into Afghanistan was to make sure that Afghanistan could not longer be a safe haven for international terrorists planning, organizing attacks against our own countries. Uh, We are now ending our military mission in Afghanistan. Uh, But uh, we have achieved uh, many important things, including that over these years we have been able to build a professional, strong Afghan security force, which will now be responsible for security in their own country. At some stage, we had to end our mission. The attention was never to be there forever. We will end our military mission, but we will continue to support the Afghan security forces with funding from all NATO allies, the United States, but also the European allies and Canada. That's critical because we now have roughly 300,000 Afghan security forces. Second, we're working on how we can provide out-of-country training for Afghan security forces to train them in another country. 
And thirdly, we are working on how we can maintain critical infrastructure, uh, like for instance, the international airport, some uh, medical facilities, uh, field hospitals and so on, uh, which are important to make sure that the international community can continue to have diplomatic presence, civilian presence, NATO will continue to civilian presence in Afghanistan, and also the development aid community that they can uh, continue to provide aid to Afghanistan. The last thing I would say about this is that, of course, the decision to end the mission in Afghanistan entails risks. We have been clear out out about that all the time. At the same time, to continue an open-ended military mission in Afghanistan would also have entailed risks for more violence, more fighting, and also the need to increase our troop numbers. So therefore, NATO allies made the difficult decision to end our military mission, knowing that, of course, there are risks, but also knowing that we'll continue to provide support to Afghans, but in other form than we do today. Secretary General, just once again, I, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to not only talk to me, but to share the wealth of knowledge that you have with all the From the Green Notebook listeners. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching From the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Garonsky signing off. And hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my hands. Strong like a tree. There's roots where I stand. Oh, I've been running from the law.